So Jesse spoke a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> and he began by talking about one of his passions, shooting. Um, and so I thought about bringing a machete, because, um, you know, he kind of joked about, you know, having a gun. It was just a case. It was just a case. Uh, but I don't have a machete, so... But you can really tell Jesse enjoys shooting. He showed the pictures of, of him, you know, out there doing it. I, I got the chance one time to go with him. And I have to say, you know, he mentioned how, you know, you shoot one of the rounds and you can smell, you know, just the smell after you fire a round. It's a very pleasing smell. I have to agree with you, Jesse. That's really, really fun. When I left, I, I, I went home thinking about hobbies. You know, what, what are the hobbies that I'm passionate about? Um, I realized... I don't really have one at the moment. I guess you could say my hobbies right now are two little girls, Olive and Fern, uh, and doing whatever they want to do. <laughs> you know, I, I like to travel. I like to plan travel. I do that as kind of a side gig. I love Liverpool soccer as they crush my dreams. Um, but I really enjoy watching soccer, but that's obviously something I'm not going to participate in physically. I like to play music. Uh, I've done that for a long time, you know, recording albums and things like that too but i don't really get the chance to play a whole lot you know living in an apartment building and having two little ones really limits the time you can make noise so maybe i'll be auditioning some new hobbies soon so if you have any suggestions let me know but we all have things that we love to do for many these are very hands-on things right you get you get your body involved in hobbies um how many of you love to kayak hike maybe go camping you can you can raise your hand we can have some participation here. How many of you love to hunt, shoot, fish, all those kind of fun things? Jesse, raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you love to throw axes? <laughs> I haven't done it yet because I value my limbs. How many of you love to garden, digging your hands into the soil, um, just planting all those wonderful things? How many of you love to craft, knit, paint, uh, do other artistic endeavors? It's wonderful. How many of you love to play music? Violin, piano, guitar, the fife. <laughs> Nobody? Nobody? Okay. All of these things get not only your mind engaged, but they get your hands, your feet um, your, your body involved. They're very tangible things. And it got me thinking as I was reading through Hebrews chapter 9, the old covenant is very hands-on. It's very tangible. You're very much involved uh, in all of this. It was repetitive. You got your hands dirty at times. Think for a moment of what it would be like. There were purification rituals for all sorts of things. Having a baby, touching a pig, touching a dead body, other Various things throughout the Leviticus and the other uh, writings of the Old Covenant, we see that there were a variety of purification rituals. There were sacrifices for a variety of things as well. You had your hands involved. So one knew that if they did the proper thing, as God commanded, and in faith, they were covered. They could walk away with some level of assurance that it was taken care of, at least until the next time. And so Israel was passionate about this system, though not as a hobby. They were passionate about it as a means to being okay with God. 
For those who could see through the eyes of faith, they knew it was pointing to something greater, a future covenant and a future promise, the Messiah. Now imagine, especially for nominal Jews who went through all the temple worship system, they went through these purification rites, um, the sacrifices, but um, doing it without the eyes of faith. Just eyes on doing. A little bit like the rich young ruler. Imagine what it would be like to hear this message preached from a preacher like the author of Hebrews, that Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice was enough for complete forgiveness and eternal redemption. No need to ever make a sacrifice. No need to constantly ask for forgiveness. Your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Through this one-time sacrifice, the finished work of the cross, the shedding of his blood, Now, you might imagine that you jump for joy at this, you know, no longer having to do this year in and year out, all the time dealing with all these rituals. Well, for some, that wasn't their response. There was fear. What am I going to look to? What am I going to... You're telling me just because this man went and died on the cross that all my sins are forgiven? But what about next year? Day of Atonement rolls around again. What do I do then? We've looked through this letter to the Hebrews, and for eight chapters now, we've seen the struggle that these Jewish recipients had in hearing about this one-time sacrifice, this good news. It couldn't be just that you had to believe in what this news announced, that one no longer had to make sacrifice, that sacrifice was done, that Jesus did the work. Even today, we like to have some involvement. We like to get our hands dirty. We like to rely on our own strength. It offers a bit of assurance knowing that our hands were involved. If you have little kids, you might be able to relate to this a little bit. How many of you feel a whole lot better if you're the one to do a certain task? You know, if Olive sees me making dinner, sometimes she'll come up and say, can I go ahead and do that? And I'll go, well, there's, you know, boiling water, you know, like, maybe you can help. You know, but I'm going to, let me, let me, let me do that. Why don't you go over there? I'll take care of it. Okay, so I have a control issue. But we like to be involved. Today's passage will show us that Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice was better, effectual, and sufficient. We'll see that the old regulations that involved repeated works and sacrifices are now done away with. And so today we're going to look at the old, and we're going to look at the new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that we've already sung about this morning. That Jesus did pay it all. That the work is finished. Lord, give us eyes to see that this morning as we read about this finished work in the letter to the Hebrews. As we dig into this a little bit deeper, would you just show more of this to us? Reveal more of this to us, Lord. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read the first uh, 10 verses here of Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. 
having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. One way to think of this letter to the Hebrews is that it's like a commentary on the Old Covenant. You could say it looks at the Old Covenant through the lens of the New Covenant. It's important for us as modern-day believers living under the New Covenant, we need to be able to make distinctions between what is old and what is new. We need to be able to know what is law and what is gospel. The author of Hebrews has been using comparisons and contrasts to show his readers that Jesus is greater. He's been showing his readers that the new covenant is greater. Here he continues and really kind of sums up a lot of what his argument has been. Uh, At times I've compared him to a lawyer kind of building his case over uh, these last few chapters. Here He digs a little bit into the regulations for worship under the old system. In verses 1 and 2, he says the first covenant, that's the old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. This place of holiness was the tent or the tabernacle. Mike mentioned last week the tabernacle preceded the temple. In chapter 8, we saw that Moses was given kind of the blueprints, if you will, of these things on Mount Sinai from God. There were sections in this tabernacle, but the author really only digs <clears throat> excuse me, into two sections. The holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. He lists some of these items that filled the tent. Not all, but some of them. In the holy place, there was the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence as well. The golden altar of incense would have actually stood outside the veil of the most holy place in the holy place, the first section. Um, though the author is not confused here, uh, the, the way that it reads, it makes it sound like it was inside the most holy place. He's simply associating this golden altar with the high priest's work that would happen in the most holy place as he would bring incense with him from that altar into the most holy place. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, containing an urn of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now the author says of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. There's much that could be said of the tabernacle and of the temple. Many have written extensively on these things. Uh, It's good to study these things. All scripture is profitable for us. Uh, But I would offer one caution uh, with the study of all these objects and, and, and whatnot. Make sure that your focus is on who they point to rather than the objects themselves. Because that's part of the problem that Israel had. They didn't realize what these things were pointing to. And they got focused on the objects themselves. 
and the system itself. There have been been many church leaders and movements who have tried to reincorporate Old Testament worship practices um, and and objects. uh, And as Mike shared last week, the trappings of the Old Covenant are fading away because the Old Covenant is now obsolete. But it's good for us to recognize that these things in the tabernacle pointed the uh, worshiper, they, they point us to Jesus. It's about Jesus. In verse 6, the author begins speaking of the repetitive work of the priesthood. The priest would daily go into the holy place performing the ritual duties. It was constant work. There was no time to sit down. They were just constantly working, constantly performing these rituals. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. All these regulations, the precise placement of all these objects, their use, the symbolism with them, they're all to point us to Christ. And they also reveal something about man under the old covenant. What they tell us is that man is sinful and on his own, cannot approach a holy God. Under the old covenant, provision was made for man to do so, though uh, it was only once a year through this sacrificial system. And even then it was only the high priest. He could come before God's presence with much fear and trembling. We don't know if this is absolutely true, but um, a lot of historians have written about it and, Uh, It seems like it may be so, but uh, many believe that they would have tied a rope around the waist of the the high priest. And if they stopped hearing him move or they heard a thud, they would drag him out. The Hebrew recipients of this letter would have understood the holy place and the most holy place to be linked with the way that God would meet with his people under the old covenant. We've been saying that the pull of these systems and rituals and regulations were actually causing these Jewish uh, people to be tempted to go back to the old covenant. They were kind of walking a tightrope between law and grace, trying to figure out if they would believe this good news or go back to what was known. The tabernacle or the temple in the day that this letter was written stood as the epicenter of worship for them. This was the place where Israel offered sacrifices and where the priests interceded on behalf of the people. The sights, the sounds, the smells were all tangible displays of what was needed for the forgiveness of their sin. Yet it lacked the power to fully cleanse the worshiper. Verses 9 and 10 say, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The author is showing that all of these things indicate in incompleteness. The repetitive work of the priesthood, the sacrifices done year after year after year, even the veil separating the holy place and the most holy place. These all cry out for the day when the final Atonement would be made when the truer sacrifice would come and the work would be put to an end. All these acts of worship were external. They couldn't cleanse the conscience or change the heart. 
They could not bring about newness of life. They were a shadow or a picture of what was to come. Verse 10 says, until the time of Reformation. Now, this is not speaking of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. This is speaking of the time of the new covenant inaugurated with Christ's death. Until the time of his death, the sacrifices had to be repeated time and time again because they could not make that final purification for sin. So the earthly tent, the tabernacle, and then the temple later, the sacrifices, the priesthood was all needed. However, most of Israel would miss the point. Looking to these tangible displays rather than what they pointed to, rather who they pointed to. Trusting in what they could do, what the priests could do. But the new covenant would change everything. And so now, let's transition to the new covenant. Let's see the reality of what all these earthly things pointed to. Let's read verses 11 through 14 as we look at the new. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, sometimes the good news just gets gooder and gooder. (laughs) Please pardon the bad grammar. In verse 11, we have this word, but. It's a very important word. You know, we often talk about, you know, the therefores and, and those transitionary words. This word, but, is very important. The last 10 verses discuss the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, the regulations, the rituals, the repetitive sacrifices, which couldn't cleanse the conscience, couldn't change the heart. But when Christ appeared, Christ, our great high priest's work, starkly contrasts the old priesthood. His work actually accomplishes the salvation the old covenant could only point to. He has appeared. God's salvation plan is now visible in Christ Jesus. The good things that have come are salvation, life with God eternally. A clean conscience, a new heart, new life. Eternal redemption. Jesus didn't do this in the earthly temple or an earthly tent. He didn't go walk into the most holy place there in the temple and offer up a lamb. But rather, he entered the heavenly one. Now, again, the earthly tent was modeled after the heavenly dwelling of God. The earthly were pictures of heavenly realities. What does that mean? Are all these things in heaven? Here's the big theological answer. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not sure what it's all going to look like. We're just going to have to go and find out. They're shadows of the heavenly reality. So I don't, I don't think that necessarily means they're identical. We do see in the book of Revelation, speaks of an altar, 
a golden censer with incense. We do see cherubim around the throne, um, and they're not cute little babies flying around like we've already looked at a few weeks back when we saw the pictures that still give me nightmares. (laughs) And if you're wondering about that, I can maybe find a picture for you. You can reach out to me. I'll send it to you. I believe the bigger reality that we need to see with all of this, that we need to grasp here, is that these things, the earthly things, they just all point to Christ. That's what we really need to take away from it. The tabernacle, the regulations for worship, they all pointed to the worshiper, to the promised Messiah to come, Jesus. And so whether they exist in heaven or not, I do know that Jesus does. And that's what is most important. So rather than the tabernacle or the temple being the center of worship, Jesus in the new covenant would become the center. No longer would our worship be centered around a tent or a building. And yes, being gathered in a building, talking about a future home for grace life, it's not all about the building. Wherever believers are, presence of the Lord is there. You're the house of the Lord. And I don't mean to offend anybody. This building is not the house of the Lord. It's not. It's a good building. We'll use it for the glory of God. You're the house of the Lord. Jesus would build in the new covenant worship around him. And it would be done in spirit and in truth. And Jesus actually addresses this whole, this whole thing with the Samaritan woman at the well. She asks about where the true place of worship should be. And the Samaritans had a place that they worshipped. The Jews had a place where they worshipped. So what's, what's the true place? And what Jesus tells her is astonishing. Let's look at that in John 4, verses 21 through 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Catch this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He reveals who he is to her. A Samaritan. Now, that might not sound all that big of a deal to us, but in their culture, that was like impossible. You wouldn't do that. Jesus did. He reveals who he is to her. And with the changing of the covenant, worship would change as well. No longer would it just be centered around this one location. But even this wasn't brand new information to the Jews. Way back in Leviticus, God said this in Leviticus twenty six eleven through 12, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. The goal was always, maybe I should say the plan was always that God would be amongst his people. And John connects this thought to Jesus in John 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This word dwelt means that Jesus came and literally tabernacled amongst us. That word dwelt is the same word for pitching a tent or tabernacling amongst a location and people. Though his earthly life and ministry were temporary, he tabernacled or dwelt among us for a little while. Now he's at the right hand of the father, still with his human resurrected body. He has a body and one day he will return. During his ministry, he rebuked the religious leaders of the day, showing them that what Moses received from God about the tabernacle and the law all pointed to him. But they didn't believe. In John five forty six, he said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So what we're seeing is that this all points to Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews is showing us in these verses is whereas the Levitical high priest could only go as far as the earthly uh, tent, they could only go through these earthly rituals and only into the holy place by means of the blood of animal sacrifice. Christ entered the eternal, heavenly, most holy place by means of his own blood. Jesus entered the holy places once for all time. Consider for a moment how many sacrifices had to have been made in Israel. From Moses to Jesus, it's about 1,300 years, give or take 30-ish There was some time during that in which there were no sacrifices because Israel was exiled in Babylon. But consider the millions of bulls, goats, lambs, and even, um, I believe there was, for poorer people, there was the opportunity to sacrifice a dove. I know it's graphic, but consider the amount of blood that is. This was a bloody system. Tangible. You would recognize the cost of sin as you saw life leave the sacrifice. What the priest could do only accomplished so much. It was kind of like a credit system, kind of like an IOU, if you will. The sacrifices were shadows or pictures, but they lacked the ability to do what only Jesus could. And that is to take sin away. Someone under the law may have seen this if they had the eyes of faith. Certainly Abraham, Moses, David, and others saw, as we'll soon see in Hebrews. John the Baptist saw. He said of Christ, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verses 13 and 14, we see that the priests had to ritually cleanse themselves with the blood of goats and bulls. They had to purify the flesh, but Jesus did not. He was clean. And so he, through the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Whereas the old priesthood had to be externally cleaned to just to engage in the sacrifices, Christ's sacrifice of himself internally and eternally cleanses those for whom he died. He purifies our consciences. He cleanses our hearts. What happens when you believe in this once-for-all sacrifice? Your conscience is cleansed. And you begin to serve God, freed from dead works of the law. These sacrifices and old ways of worship are called dead works because under the new, they amount to nothing. They had to be done over and over and over again to cleanse or to cover, but not to cleanse. Christ's death removes our sin and our guilt. Let's read verses 15 through 22 here. 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood that both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here we see Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. That means that Jesus agrees with the father that in our sin, you and I deserve God's wrath. That our sin was ugly. He agrees to become the sacrifice needed to atone for that sin. And he comes to earth and he does that. He doesn't find a compromise between two parties like we often associate a mediator with. He becomes the needed sacrifice. And secures eternal redemption for all those who would believe. Have you ever wondered how saints in the Old Testament uh, were, were saved? This verse shows us. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who are called. Those who believe the promise of God of the coming Messiah. Receive the promised eternal inheritance. Because Jesus died a death that redeems them from the transgressions committed under that first covenant. It's always been faith in the coming Messiah. And for us, it's looking back to the Messiah who came. They didn't know all the details. They didn't know what Jesus would exactly do. But they knew that God promised this and they took him at his word. They believed the promise of the good news. That it was coming. We look back in faith at the fulfillment of the promise and at the announcement of the good news. In verses 16 and 17, we see that for a will to be in effect, there must be a death. Same is true today. For a will and testament to go into effect, there has to be a death. This word will is the same as testament and covenant. What this shows us is that the new covenant went to an effect went into effect when Jesus died on the cross. It didn't begin with his birth. It begins with the shedding of blood. Now, in our Bibles, there are two major sections. They've been called the Old Testament and the New Testament. The reason is sometime around the second century, church leaders began using this term testament to refer to books of the Bible rather than what it was previously referring to, which was the covenants. So now, because of tradition, we tend to think, when we hear this word New Testament, we think of that little page that precedes Matthew 1. And Old Testament is that page that precedes Genesis 1. Well, it doesn't. If we take the word testament to mean covenant, as we find with the author of Hebrews and Paul's writings as well, then the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of the New Covenant, actually occurs when Jesus dies, not at Matthew 1. It's 
important for us to know this. We need to consider these things. The author wants us to know it. The author wants us to consider a will, a testament, that it cannot go into effect until a death has occurred. That's important for us to know. The dividing line of history is the death of Christ. Certainly his birth is important. We can honor and celebrate it. We're free to do so. But his death is the dividing line of history. That's when the covenants changed. In verse 18, we see that even the first or the old covenant was inaugurated with, sorry, with blood. Now, I thought about a physical demonstration here. You know, Mike had a really cool physical demonstration last week. We had a lot of shouting at each other, right? It was fun. We'd always get to yell at each other. So I got a bucket of blood. I don't have any wool or hyssop, um, so I'm just going to sprinkle you guys with this cloth, if that's... No? It's not even blood, it's water. It's not even water from the roof this time. I I won't do that, I'm sorry. But consider how the Old Covenant was based on a blood economy. Uh, The way the Old Covenant came into effect, as we see here in Scripture, was that everything from the people to the tabernacle, the objects in the tabernacle, the book of the covenant, everything had to be sprinkled with blood. It was a bloody covenant in order for it to be set apart for worship. A death had to occur. Blood had to be shed. Though it was based on blood, as we saw already, it lacked the power to take away sin. God commanded the Old Covenant for Israel to keep. And how good did they do? They failed. They couldn't do it. The Old Testament account of Israel is one of failing to obey, repenting, uh, promising really, you know, God, we'll do better. We'll, we'll try harder. Failing. Rinse and repeat. And today in our culture, we have ways of writing offenses. We base whether we forgive someone who has wronged us on an apology. If I offend or hurt someone in some way, I apologize and show remorse. Hopefully they'll forgive me. They might based on the sincerity of my apology and the extent of my contrition. But this is not what the scripture teaches us about how God forgives. The forgiveness of sin is only based on blood. In the old, it was the blood of bulls and goats, and it was only sufficient to cover, could not take away. And sometimes we even today kind of fall into some of those patterns of rinse and repeat, if you will, like Israel did. We're not running around to go sacrifice bulls and goats, but how often do we sin and then promise God, I'll never do that again. And we find ourselves stuck in that same cycle. I know that's the testimony of a good chunk of my life almost daily, going, God, I'll do better next time. I'll read more scripture. I'll be more sincere when I apologize. And inevitably, give in to sin. And then promise again. And work really hard. You know, And as Protestants, we're probably not going to go to a priest to confess our sin, but we often feel the fear of what if... I don't ask for forgiveness enough. What if I don't ask for forgiveness for all my sin? Yeah, God saved me. He forgave me. But was that enough? 
Got to keep asking for more. What brings about forgiveness? Verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, it's the blood of Christ, not your apology, not your promise. If it were about those things, then it would be all about you. And the enemy could just throw that right back in your face. Did you really mean it when you asked for forgiveness? Did you show enough humility? I bet you didn't even say the right words or maybe do it publicly enough. Maybe you need to go stand on top of the stage here and confess every sin that you've ever done. Then maybe. The author of Hebrews is helping us to see this a little bit more clearly about how forgiveness works. Let's keep reading here. Verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So let, amen. Let's unpack this. Again, comparing the earthly things with the heavenly things here. Comparing Jesus, our great high priest, and the old priesthood. The copies had to be purified with blood. But Jesus' sacrifice is better. It's associated with heavenly things. He didn't enter the earthly tent. He entered into heaven itself, appeared before God the Father on your behalf. And he doesn't do this repeatedly. In fact, what's stressed here, and we need to see this, is that it was a once-for-all time action. He shed his blood. He died. He rose again. And he ascended into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. He isn't constantly going back on that cross. He doesn't offer himself, come down, and then you sin, and he has to crawl back up onto that cross, <laughs> offer himself again, come back down. He's not doing that over and over and over again. He did it once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So on a bloody cross nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus died to make you perfectly forgiven and perfectly cleansed. Jesus shed his blood, and the work was finished. His work is done. The new covenant was in effect at that moment, and you were forgiven in Christ. Christians are not people being forgiven. They're not Christians striving for forgiveness. Christians are forgiven people. So if you are a believer here today, your sin has not been covered. It's been taken away. It's gone. Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Again, the good things, right? 
in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, you have an eternal Redemption. And it's through his blood, the forgiveness of your sin. You have this. It's a reality. No, you don't always feel it. And yes, at times you stumble and sin. But this is the truer reality of who you are in Christ. Forgiven. You just have to believe it. So when the accuser comes and says, did you mean it? Did you ask the right way? Did you do enough? You can rest assured it's not about your asking for forgiveness. It's about the blood of Jesus. And it absolutely was enough. He died once and for all. And if you believe it, you have that forgiveness. The author of Hebrews ends this chapter with just a little bit of future hope. Verses 27 and 28, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you're like me and you watched enough of those movies about uh, the return of Christ that were put out in the 70s and 80s, you're probably terrified of Jesus coming back. I've grown past that, but there was a time of my teenage experience where I was absolutely terrified of the thought of Jesus coming back. I was convinced that there was some judgment awaiting me. That in the end, I wouldn't be found worthy enough. Here, the author encourages us here. Jesus is not returning to deal with your sin. Some translations say he's not coming back in reference to sin. Now it's true that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. But what we've seen is that he's already dealt with your sin. So that means he's already taken your judgment. And he's not going to judge a second time. There's no movie going to play with all your acts of sin for all to see. Do you believe the scriptures that say that your sin has gone as far as the east is from the west? That God has chosen to forget those things? Why would then all of a sudden at the end of all things he remembers it all? God is not a liar. Your sin is gone. Death was the punishment, the judgment for sin. And Jesus already died and he's only going to do that once. He's not doing that again. He's not coming to judge you, the believer. Your sin was already judged in Christ, and the punishment has been doled out. So you can eagerly anticipate his return. You can look forward to it with joy. He's coming back to rescue you from the fallen condition of this world. What we've seen is simple. The old covenant required sacrifices over and over and a yearly day of atonement. The work was never done until the day Christ died on the cross. And that put an end to the old covenant and brought about the new. How do you apply this to your life? You can rejoice and eagerly anticipate the return of Christ because his sacrificial death atoned for your sin once and for all. 
He's taken away your sin. You don't have to live in a pattern of failure promises and constantly asking for forgiveness. You're forgiven. And you can live in that forgiveness, resting in what Christ has done. You can live fear free from the fear of judgment. Let's get that right. By believing this good news of what Jesus has done. And you can rest in it. You can have confidence and assurance of these, of these good things that Jesus came to bring about. And so when fear or accusation comes, because it will, we'll, we'll feel these things. We're still in these fallen bodies. And you begin to question and doubt. You can point outside yourself to the blood of Jesus. You can say that the blood is enough. Jesus is enough. God's grace is enough. And when you sin, because this flesh remains with us and we will sin, you can talk to God about it and just ask him for help not to do it again. You can thank him for his forgiveness. You can get back up knowing that in Christ you're forgiven and, and you can boldly come before the throne of grace. He's got more. He's got more grace for you. See, that's what Hebrews has been showing us is that you can come to him. He's your father. In the old, you couldn't, you couldn't go before him. Only the high priest could do that. But you and I, from the youngest to the oldest, whoever has believed can come before our heavenly father confidently. And what better way for us to uh, celebrate this once and for all sacrifice, uh, but by partaking in the Lord's table this morning. And so as we do this, we celebrate this one-time death and his resurrection. I want to read from Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So in taking the the bread and taking of the juice here, we are remembering his death, the shedding of blood to redeem fallen sinners, but we're also celebrating the resurrection life that we now have. And I want to encourage you this morning to participate with joy over the wonderful things we've heard this morning from the, from the scriptures, the good news. Celebrate these things. We have new life because this new covenant, because of the shedding of his blood, and he is faithful to all of his promises. He will return. And we can look forward to that with joy. So as Nate and the team lead us in song, uh, you can make your way to either the table in the front or the table in the back. Whichever is closest to you, take what you need. Um, there's bread, there's gluten-free crackers, um, and the little juice cups. And uh, take it back to your seat and partake there. This table, this celebration is for those who have believed in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you right now that if you haven't yet believed in Jesus, he's offering you his life because of his death. The good news is that he died to forgive you of your sin and to give you eternal life 
with him. Just receive that. If you've believed, come and partake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news. That our awful, wicked sin has been dealt with once and for all. That Jesus took away our sin. That our sin is gone. And though we sometimes stumble, we stand as forgiven believers, forgiven sons and daughters. We're not kicked to the curb. We're not distant. You stay close. You've called us clean. What you've called clean, let no one call unclean. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.